Okay, so last week we talked. We were talking about the reality of faith and living according to what you believe, and how everybody is religious when it comes to living life according to whatever it is that you believe in. Depending on what you believe, it affects how you live. And some people dedicate their lives to making money. That's what they're religious about. Some people are religious about health or education or some people worship drugs and alcohol and sexuality, that kind of stuff. And a a few people here and there are wholeheartedly committed to living for the Lord. And that's they live out what they believe because of that. So what does your life reveal about what you trust in? How does the way that you live and the decisions you make and the things that you talk about reveal your religion? Well, that was last week's question. This week, this morning, we're going to dig into the idea that everybody believes in God. Not that everybody obeys God or honors God or worships God, but everybody knows that there is a God, that that they have knowledge of our Creator and therefore have no excuse for rejecting Him when they're held accountable for their choices. And and obviously there's a big difference between just knowing God and loving and serving Him. You can know God without caring about Him. Kind of like you can know your neighbor without caring about your neighbor. So there's a difference between knowing someone and and loving them. And it's true with God too. James 2.19, James says, You believe that God is one? Well and good. Even the demons believe that and tremble with fear. The demons know God, but they obviously don't honor Him. And that's why they were kicked out of heaven. Did you know that you can know the truth and reject it? You can know what's real. You can know the truth about God and, and, and not accept it. And, and a lot of people do just that. So how do you react to what you know? The knowledge that you have, how do you live your life because of it. Maybe an important question to consider is, can we know anything for certain? That's a popular question in, in the world these days. And in, in the higher education system of our nation these days, that's the thing that gets purported by a lot of people is, we can't really know anything for sure. That's what they'll teach you. If you go to, if you go to university, you go to college, they'll teach you. You can't really know anything. Okay, so why am I in a university studying? Um, but that's a, that's a question people ask. How do, you, how do you know anything for certain? There are plenty of things that we don't know. There are things that we know that we don't know. For example, I'll bet you didn't know that there are more plastic flamingos in the world than there are real flamingos. That you <laughs> there are more plastic flamingos in the world, like they people put in their yard, than there are real flamingos. You, put, you might not have known that. Another thing you don't know, an adult human that's pretty much all of us, has between two and nine pounds of bacteria living in your body. (laughs) That's a fun thing to think about. A blue whale's heart is the size of a Volkswagen Beetle. And you could, if you were inside the the vessels, the blood vessels of a blue whale, you could swim inside some of its arteries. that's That's a huge creature. That's something you probably didn't know. All of the gold mined in history, every bit of gold that we've ever pulled out of the earth, could fit in a 60-foot cube. All the gold in the world. Something else you didn't know. There are more atoms in a single glass of water than there are glasses of water in all the oceans in the world. 
Kind of interesting. Something else you probably didn't know. Half of all humans who have ever lived died of malaria. And you're worried about Ebola. (laughs) Once Charlie Chaplin entered a Charlie Chaplin lookalike contest and came in third. He lost. (laughs) If you shuffle a deck of cards, 52 playing cards, chances are that the, the new order of the playing cards has never existed in history before. That's how many different mixtures you can make with a deck of 52 cards. Of all the people in history, everybody who has ever lived who have reached 65 years of age, half of them are living right now. That's how many people have had such short lifespans in the past that half of the people who have made it to 65 are still alive today. If you could physically fold a piece of paper 42 times, it would reach the moon. Uh, You can try the challenge. You probably won't be able to do it. But if you could fold it over 42 times, it'd reach to the moon. You replace every single cell in your body every seven years. So you are literally not the person that you used to be seven years ago. (laughs) When your mother was born, she was already carrying the egg that would become you. Isn't that interesting? If there was no space between any of the atoms in the world, the whole planet would be the size of a baseball if you took out all the space in between the atoms. If you could put all of the Earth's ants in one pile and all of the Earth's people in another pile, the pile of ants would be bigger. There's more mass of ants in the planet than there are of people. And then just a couple more. The largest air force in the world is the U.S. Air Force. The second largest air force in the world is the U.S. Navy. (laughs) And the last one, vending machines kill four times as many people as shark attacks. And Shark Week is so popular and everybody's scared of sharks, but you ought to be more scared of vending machines. (laughs) Okay, so that's enough, but these are all things that you didn't know. And you know that you didn't know them when when I told you. There are things that we know that we don't know. Um, so now you know, and knowing is half the battle, but how can anybody actually know whether the things that we think we know are true or not? You know, it sounds a little complicated, but how do you know what you know? How do you gain information or knowledge or wisdom? Do you, you could read a book, but how do you know the book is true? You could Google it. You know, how many questions these days that we want to know? Do people go on the internet and do a search? And we know that whatever we see on the internet is true, right? Everything on the internet has to be true. But, but can you cross-check it? Can you cross-check Google? How do you do that? How do you find out information to make sure that the Internet is right? And if you do cross-check that, how do you know that your cross-check is right? You know, if you go to the library and check out a book and it happens to say the same thing as the Internet, how do you know the book is right? How do you know they're both right? Maybe they're both wrong. How do you, do you, do you have to go out and measure all knowledge for yourself? You know, you look something on the Internet and it's confirmed. You read it in a book and it's confirmed. But... Could those things be wrong? Do you have to go out yourself and personally measure and test and see it for yourself before you believe it's real? And if you did that, if everybody had to go personally check everything for themselves, how do you know that all the knowledge in the world isn't just personal preference? Just your own idea of what truth is. And before you even go that far, first you have to assume that there is such a thing as truth. You have to assume that some things can be true and not be false. 
Or some things can be false and not be true, but they can't be both. And that's a pretty powerful assumption. Does absolute truth exist? Is there such a thing as truth that is true and not false? If you say no, can you be absolutely sure about that? Kind of a conundrum, isn't it? If you say yes, how can you be absolutely sure about it? How can you be sure that there is absolute truth? How do you know if there's truth or not? It's a, is it an assumption that we have to make on faith? Can you really prove that there's truth? I mean, we like to use math a lot for things. There are formulas for, for almost everything that you do. Some scientist has come up with a formula for how it works. But does math work? Is 2 plus 2 really 4? It sounds logical, but how do you know? Maybe 2 plus 2 works for you and doesn't work for me. That's what they tell you in a university. Is there a way to really be sure? Do you believe that some things are true? That you know things to be true? Do you believe that you could explain that logically? Is logic material? Is, is logic real? Is, does, does, does logic change? Can it be true right now and not true later? You know, two plus two. Is it always four or does sometimes it's something else? Do you want to know how I know that you already believe in absolute, that everybody believes in absolute truth? Do you want to know how I know that everybody believes that there is universal logic, that logic never changes, it's always the same, two plus two always equals four, it will always be true and never be false? Do you want to know how I know that everyone believes in absolute truth? Because without it, you couldn't argue for anything. You couldn't support anything. You couldn't defend anything. You couldn't be sure of anything. You couldn't prove anything. There are people, there are a lot of people these days who will tell you that you, that they are sure that you can't be sure of anything. Which self-defeats their own argument. I mean, people will argue that, but they're fools. That's the state of the current education system. You know, if you've argued with a a university philosophy professor. We watched that movie last week, which is a really good movie. But in real life, they're, they're teachers. They're not even philosophy professors. They're regular, you know, they talk about engineers who will argue, you know, if I say, is this a podium? And they'll say yes. And I'll say, I think it's a banana. Am I wrong? And they'll say no. What do you mean no? Obviously, it's not a banana. Well, But that's the state of philosophy these days, that people... There, that there's no absolute truth. That whatever is true for you is true for you, and whatever is true for me is true for me. But obviously, this is not a banana. This is a podium. And only a moron would think it could somehow, in the world of anything, be a banana. And, and that's kind of where we are. But, no one actually lives their life according to that philosophy. No one actually lives believing that there is no truth. Everyone lives their life according to absolute truth. They go through the day full of faith, living in trust that the universe is going to be the same today as it was yesterday. That when they sit on a chair, it's still going to be a chair, it's still going to support them. That when they drive their car down the highway, the car isn't just going to disappear into vapor and they'll wind up to stain on the asphalt. They believe that when they open the refrigerator, they're going to find their food. I mean, they operate on a, on a, on a belief that the universe works according to law, that, that logic is real, that, that truth exists. And, and that's how I know that nobody actually believes 
that there is no absolute truth. Because they don't live their lives that way. They live their lives according to what they truly believe. And that is that there is truth and there is logic and the world makes sense. In a truly random universe that didn't have absolute unchanging truth, purple bicycled Qbert waterfall la la la. I mean, nothing would make sense. If you lived in a random universe, there would be no reason. Because what might be true this moment might not be true the next moment. It would be nonsense. With absolute, without absolute truth, without logic, everything would be untrue at some time. Everything would be illogical. And nobody would know anything for sure. But nobody in the real world lives that way. In fact, everybody, everybody alive lives according to a biblical worldview. Because the Bible is the only book that reveals what truth is, that reveals who truth is and why we can trust in Him. Without the Bible's revelation about who God is, there would be no foundation for knowledge, no foundation for truth. If you want to really know the truth about anything, you better start by knowing Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, if you continue to follow My teaching, you are really My disciples. And then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So you obey Jesus, you obey His teachings, and that's how you know the truth. You follow the Lord and He reveals Himself to you. And if you don't know Jesus, then you don't know anything. God makes absolute, universal, unchanging logic possible. And without God, there would be no truth. And, 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 you know, without God, you couldn't prove anything. You couldn't be sure of anything. So I hope that you spend some time on a regular basis studying the Bible. I mean, I hope all of you open your Bibles on a regular basis and, and, and not just read it, but understand it. Dig into it to know what it means, to know the character of God, to know who Jesus is. And, and because if you're not studying the Bible, then you're, you're not understanding truth. Because all truth is founded. All truth comes out of God. And without Him, we would, there, I mean, if, if there was no God, there would be no universe. There would be no life. But if it were possible to have life and to have the universe and to live in this world without God, it would be random. It would be nonsense. And it wouldn't be the kind of sensical, logical world we live in today. And so I hope that you're studying on a regular basis and, and knowing God. First Peter 3.15, this is another reason why we need to know the truth, and we need to know the truth that sets people free, and, and we need to be able to make sense of our faith to explain our faith. First Peter 3.15 But set Christ apart as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks about the hope that you possess. Yet do it with courtesy and respect, keeping a good conscience, so that those who slander your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame when they accuse you. For it is better to suffer for doing good if God wills it, than for doing evil. We are to be prepared for a pop quiz on Jesus at any moment of our lives. To be ready to give an answer to anybody who rejects the knowledge of God. So we need to study the Scripture. We need to make God's Word second nature to us. Like eating. Do you ever think about how to eat? No, you just eat. You've been doing it all your lives. You don't even think about it. You know the fork just automatically knows how to get to your mouth. You chew without counting. It just happens. That's the way we ought to know God's Word. To know God through His Word so that we can share Him with other people. 
And, and we need to be ready to defend our belief in Jesus with reason, with truth. We need to be able to explain why we believe what we believe. That's what apologetics is. I know a lot of people have heard of apologetics and some people think we're kind of apologizing for the faith. No, apologetics is defending the faith with reason, with, with knowledge. 2 Corinthians 10, chapter 10, starting at verse 3, says, For though we live lives, as our scripture for the day, for though we live lives as, as we live as human beings, we do not wage war according to human standards. For the weapons of our warfare are not human weapons, but are made powerful by God for tearing down strongholds. We tear down arguments and every arrogant obstacle that is raised up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to make it obey Christ. That means as a, as a Christian, we don't just give out food and clothes to the poor or, or mow the widow neighbor's lawn and do the good deed. Those are good things. Those are great. We, we are called to be servants and to help those who need help. Absolutely. But if we truly live like Jesus, Jesus didn't just do good deeds. Jesus didn't just do nice things for people. If we live like Jesus, then we live at war with evil. We're called to be warriors, not fighting with, with guns and bombs and missiles, but fighting with weapons of the Holy Spirit. And we tear down arguments. That's our warfare. We bust through obstacles that are raised up against the knowledge of God. If someone says there is no God, we say, no, there is a God, and let me show you why with logic and reason and power. The power of what God helps us to do. That means, the, so, so how do you tear down an atheist stronghold. When an atheist says there is no God, you can't prove him. He's not real. Do you argue about buildings that need a builder? That's a common one. That you know, you look at the world and it's complex. That you know, and every building needs a builder. So why would the world need a, a creator? Do you argue about the beauty of nature? Why is there so much beauty? Why is there so much color? As science, I, I, I watch the nature shows, and all the time they're saying we don't know why this animal is, you know, has so many colors. We think maybe it's for mating or maybe it's for something else. And they don't really know why there's so much color and beauty. Ever used that argument? Have you ever used irreducible complexity in biology that there are systems in nature that just couldn't exist if they, if they couldn't have evolved there because the creatures would have destroyed themselves on the way evolving? Have you ever used any of those kinds of arguments? I have. I've, I argue that stuff all the time. Do you tell stories of miracles? Amazing things that have happened in your life that can't really be explained by science, but you know they happened. They saw, you saw them, you experienced them. What kind of proof, what kind of evidence do you use to win over the unbeliever? And, and, and to, for, with that matter, what good is any of the evidence? If someone says they don't believe in God, what good would any of those arguments do? Because ultimately, how do you know what you know? Because they're arguing we don't really know anything. You can't know that. You can't know any of that stuff. How do you know? Because they'll say, how do you know? You'll say, well, I, you know, you're supposed to turn to Jesus because he, he died for your sin. How do you know? Well, it's in the Bible. Well, how do you know the Bible's right? Well, because God inspired it. Well, how do you know that? In Romans, what you do, what, you, what do you usually do when someone says they don't believe in God? I don't believe in God. Well, why don't you believe in God? Because whatever. And then what do you usually do? You, you start explaining reasons why they should believe to God. You start presenting the evidence. This is proof of God. You know, the, 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 uh, 
prophecy in Scripture. Hundreds of prophecies coming to fruition in the life of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's fulfilled prophecies. Amazing in the Bible. That's an evidence. That's a proof. The, the things I mentioned before, the biological complexity and beauty and the, and the things in nature needing something to build them, the, the DNA, the information in DNA coding. I mean, that's good evidence for proving that God, and that's the stuff you usually start thinking about when someone says, I don't believe in God. Let me tell you why you should believe in God. That's what we do, right? That's our typical kind of argument. Well, this is what Paul says how to deal with those kinds of people. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. So that's the beginning of Romans, uh, verse 18 in chapter 1. And it says that people know the truth and they suppress it through their unrighteousness. That they don't want to accept it and so they, you know, they're, they're living the life they want to live so they don't want to accept the truth so they just ignore it. And verse 19 says, because what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen because they are understood through what has been made. So people are without excuse. That's what the Bible, that's what God's Word says, that everybody knows there is a God. God God Himself has revealed God to them. God Himself has shown the world that He is real, that He is true. He's, he's, He's shown His invisible attributes. He's shown His eternal power, His divine nature that can all be clearly seen and understood just by looking at the world around us. That's what the Bible says. But, and so all people are without excuse. If someone says they don't believe in God, they're lying. They know that God is real. They are denying the God who planted the truth of Himself within them. In every person, to look at the world around us and say that nothing created it all, that you know, it was just random chance and we're here, Basically, that's blasphemy because God gave them that truth and they're rejecting it. So, why would you bother presenting evidence to a blasphemer? Why would you try to convince someone that God is real when they already know God is real? How do you do that? If someone said your mother is a prostitute, would you respond by presenting evidence to them? By saying, well... That can't be true because last night she was at her, her knitting, or the night, three nights ago, she was at her knitting circle with all her friends. So there's no way she could have been out on the streets selling herself. And then the night after that, she was in choir, in choir practice. So I'm sure she wasn't out on the streets. The evidence shows that she's not selling herself for sex. And then last night I was over at her house for dinner. So I, am, I have plenty of good evidence that my mother is not a prostitute. Is that how you would argue with someone who says your mother is a prostitute? Of course not. You would, you, you're not going to argue evidence. You're going to say, don't you dare speak about my mother that way. You, I mean, you're, you're not going to put up with that. You're going to say, I am not going to stand for that. I won't put up with that kind of garbage. Shut your mouth. Yeah, <laughs> so, so when someone says, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in the God who has planted God's information in them. I don't believe in God who has revealed Himself through His creation. I don't believe in God who has written His law on my heart. I don't believe in God. When someone says that, why would you try to convince them with Bible trivia? 
You should say, don't you dare deny the Creator who gave you life and keeps you from dropping into the fiery pit of hell right now, which is where you deserve to go because of your sins, but God is still giving you time to repent. Don't you dare talk about God that way. You blasphemer. The Word of God declares that you do know that God exists. You've just rejected it because you want to live a sinful life. The problem is not that people don't have enough information and that somehow we'll convince them with more details. The problem is that they don't want to submit to God's authority. They don't want to have to live in accordance with the commands of Christ. And so they willingly ignore the truth, the apparent truth, and they are without excuse for their sin. It's not about the evidence. and not, I mean, there's plenty of evidence. And, and really, it's about our worldview. It's about the, tr- the, the, the lenses that we look at the world through, our presuppositions. We all have the same evidence. We all look at the same world around us. But we interpret the evidence through what we already believe. I mean, there, there's a mountain of evidence for, for one, you know, for like the resurrection of Jesus. There's plenty of evidence that shows that Jesus was a real person, that he really died, that he really rose from the dead. You know, there's things like the soldiers, the, the Roman guards who were placed to guard the tomb, and the, and the earthquake, and they were fainted with fright, and, they, and Jesus came out, and there's the soldier's testimony that, that went to the Jewish priests and said, This is what happened. And they said, Don't tell anybody. We'll pay you some money. Keep your mouth shut about it. There's, there's the evidence of the stone being rolled away, that big massive stone that the, the two women who went to the grave to put spices on them, they couldn't have rolled that stone away. There's, there's the women's testimony. I mean, usually you don't include a woman's testimony. In that day and age, women's testimony didn't count because they were kind of second-class citizens. But the Bible includes them. That's another piece. It's just evidence. And, and there's all sorts of things. There's the disciples. I mean, the disciples whose lives were transformed when they saw Jesus and they went from being a bunch of scaredy cats to these bold men of God who were willing to sacrifice their lives to preach the gospel. I and mean, that's evidence. There's the, the witnesses. There were witnesses of Jesus all over the place. There was 500 at one point. So the people who saw Jesus back from the dead. So there's plenty of evidence. But even if, even if you argued with somebody, and you gave them all the evidence, and you, and you told them about why the resurrection is true, they could say, okay, I believe you. Jesus was a, a, alive. He was killed. He came back from the grave. Fine. That doesn't mean the person you're arguing with is going to submit to, the, to God's authority. Even if you prove your case and you convince them and they're willing to accept the truth that Jesus was resurrected, doesn't mean that they're going to submit to Him. When you think about presenting evidence to support your side, what do you think of? When, you, when, when someone presents evidence to try to win an argument, where do they usually do that? In court. You go to court to present the evidence. And there's the prosecution and the defense and, you, and you're giving your evidence trying to defend the truth, right? So if you're, trying, if you're trying to defend God, if you're trying to present your evidence to defend Him, then where would He be sitting in the courtroom? He'd be sitting on the, de- the defense's side. He'd be sitting in the, the, the criminal's box. He'd be sitting in the one who's being judged as to whether he's worthy or not. Where's he supposed to be sitting? In the judge's seat. He's the, he'll be, that's where he'll be sitting on judgment day. He's supposed to be the head of the courtroom and we've got him in the defendant's table trying to defend that he's real. 
Of course, there's absolutely nothing wrong with using evidence. I use evidence all the time. I love to argue history and science and, and the, the things around us that I understand. There's nothing wrong with evidence if somebody wants to understand better. If you're trying to share information to educate somebody, that's perfectly fine. And, and there have been plenty of people who have come to the faith because a Christian took the time to study and to learn and to understand and be able to explain factual things, to explain the creation science and explain history and, and to explain how real-world evidence so logically supports the biblical narrative. There have been plenty of people who have come to the faith because someone understood how to share what they know about the world and how it comports with the Bible. And so people have said, oh, I didn't know that before. That makes so much sense and why I should submit myself to God. So that does happen. But most of the time when you're arguing with somebody, what you don't want is to base your entire faith on evidence alone. Christianity is true. The Bible is true, so there is plenty of evidence to support it. We don't have blind faith. Your, your faith shouldn't be blind. If you're believing in God because someone said so, then you're not, probably not really believing in God. Your faith ought to be well-informed faith and, and grounded in truth. You absolutely should strengthen your faith by, by understanding the universe around you and, and, and how it comports with Scripture. But if your whole faith is based on evidence alone, then you become the one who is judging God according to your knowledge. If your faith is just based on trivia, then you become the one who decides whether God is real or not based on the evidence. Science is limited by the tools we can create. I mean, we can only understand so much because we can only measure so much. What happens when you face the things that you can't explain through evidence alone? When your loved one dies in a tragic way, you can't explain that. When, 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 when you develop an incurable disease, when a tornado or a tsunami levels a city and kills hundreds and sometimes thousands of people, what kind of faith does that evidence provide? You know, if that's evidence, and it is evidence for something, depending on how you look at it, what kind of faith does evidence like that build? Because a lot of people have walked away from the faith because of things like that. They say, well, this proves there is no God. This evidence says God doesn't care about us. God wants to kill us. God hates us. I mean, people use that kind of evidence to, to say that. So if you're just using evidence, it doesn't really produce a real faith. So our foundation should not be evidence. What should our foundation be? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the foundation of our faith. We start with the foundation of Christ alone. Why? Because He is real. He is truth. He is life. He is our foundation. And so we start with Jesus. And upon Jesus, we build with knowledge and with wisdom and, and with supporting evidence and all those things. We add on to top of Jesus the foundation. Then when the hard times hit and the doubts arise and things in the world fall apart, you don't put your trust in the evidence. You put your trust in the Lord. Remember, you trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Right? We trust in Jesus because we don't know it all. We're not God. We can't know everything. And so sometimes things happen that we can't explain, that we don't understand. We don't know why. We ask God why. We don't know. 
So we put our trust in the one that we do know because He's revealed Himself. He's revealed Himself to every single person and every single person knows that God is real. He's given us His proof in the world around us. And so we put our faith in Jesus Christ and upon that we build. And, and, and what's the beginning of wisdom? Fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we put our trust in Jesus. We, we, we obey the, the teachings of Jesus. We respect God. We fear the Lord because of who He is and His power and His judgment against us when we sin. Proverbs 38 starts out like this. says, My child, do not forget My teaching, but let your heart keep My commandments, for they will provide a long and full life, and they will add well-being to you. Do not let truth and mercy leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and people. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. Acknowledge Him in all your ways and He will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. This will bring healing to your body and refreshment to your inner self. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled completely and your vats will overflow with new wine. My child, do not despise the discipline from the Lord and do not loathe His rebuke. For the Lord disciplines those He loves just as a father disciplines the son in whom He delights. God doesn't always work according to the way the world thinks success comes. God says, remember God with your with your health, with your money. Give God what He deserves. Then you'll have plenty. Respect God. Obey His commandments. Then you'll have understanding. Trust in the Lord and then you will know. My grandma, a lot of you know about how my grandma died. She, her swallowing mechanism quit. And she had dementia. She, had, you know, she couldn't remember who she was. She couldn't remember who I was. She lost her memory of, of life and she died of starvation, basically. She, she dehydrated. She couldn't eat because her swallowing mechanism failed. And it's, it was a terrible way to die. To not know who you are, to not know where you are, to not know who the people around you are. And to die of dehydration, probably. Because she couldn't drink. She couldn't eat. It's not a fun thing to think about. I don't know why God allowed her to go through what sounds to me like a lot of suffering and a lot of pain and a, and a lot of confusion and heartache. Why did God allow that? I don't know. At least not yet I don't know. But here's what I do know. That all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And I know my grandma loved God, so I know that He's going to use that for her benefit. I don't know how, but He's going to. And He's going to use it for the people who knew her and knew how she went. He's going to use it for good. I don't know how. I don't know when. But I know that because I trust God. I believe in Him. So, when we argue for the faith, we don't just argue evidence. You know, here's an apologetic situation for you. You guys have all heard of, of the Andy Griffiths show, right? So you know Andy Griffiths the sheriff and Barney Fife is the deputy and they, and they live in this sleepy town called Mayberry and... Barney, imagine that you are Barney. You've got your bullet in your pocket. You're in charge of watching the town because Andy Griffiths had to go somewhere. So you are you're one cop guarding the one town. And Otis shows up, drunk. And so what did 
Otis do when he came in drunk? He always walked to the cell and locked himself up so Barney could watch him and, and make sure that he wasn't out causing problems. Well, you leave, Bar- you leave Otis in the cell and you go home that night and you, you know, have your night off. You, you've, you've left your uniform and you've left your squad car at the police station because Otis is in the cell and he'll be fine because that's the way he always is. Well, the next morning you wake up and you go to work and you discover that your squad car is missing and your uniform is missing and Otis is gone. Okay, so you, you've, you've ridden your bike to work, so you decide you'll ride your bike around town and see if you can't find the car. Well, you're riding along, and all of a sudden behind you, you hear a siren. And it's a police car, so you pull over. And Otis steps out of the car wearing your uniform. And he says, you were speeding. I caught you on the radar. And you say, that's impossible. There's no way I was speeding. I was riding a bike. I can't. I'm just, it's humanly impossible. Look at the. You, if you look at the gearing on the bicycle, you can measure how fast I was pedaling, and you can prove scientifically that it's impossible for me to have speeding. Not to mention the radar gun. It, it, it's the bike is too small to pick up, so the bike would have never registered a, on a radar gun. So scientifically, it's impossible for me to have been speeding. And Otis says, "Okay." You've convinced me. You weren't speeding. And he gets back in the car and drives away. You won the argument. But what's the problem? You're st- he's still got your car. He's still got you. And, and really, that car is not yours. That uniform is not yours. It belongs to the government. You are working under the authority of the government. So you get back to the sheriff's department and Andy's come back. And how do you think he's going to feel about the fact that you don't have your car or your uniform? He's not going to be happy, right? And this is an apologetic situation in the world because it happens all the time. When, when all you have is evidence to present to the unbeliever, you've given up your authority. You've allowed the world to take the authority and treat you like you are an idiot and, and believe in a God that doesn't exist when that person already believes in God. Here's 2 Timothy chapter 2, at verse 23 says, But reject foolish and ignorant controversies because you know they breed infighting, infighting. And the Lord's slave must not engage in heated disputes, but be kind towards all, an apt teacher, patient, correcting opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance and then knowledge of the truth. And they will come to their senses and escape the devil's trap where they are held captive to do his will. When a person has darkened their mind with sin and rebellion, they lose the ability to think right. They can't think logically because they've cut themselves off from the source of wisdom and the source of truth. They've traded rationality for fleshly desires. I mean, really, they've killed themselves with sin. Why would you kill yourself spiritually, eternally, for any sin? It doesn't seem worth it, right? It seems crazy. We've all done it in the past. It's irrational. It's illogical. So when people do that, when they choose to live in sin, they cut themselves off from knowledge and wisdom. And and so their only hope, their only chance is to escape eternal torment is Jesus, is the truth. And when someone is ready to submit their lives to God, that's when the Lord grants repentance as a gift. You know, It says that perhaps God will grant them repentance and then knowledge of the truth as a gift. And, and God, Jesus Christ, transforms a person from the inside out. 
by the renewing of their mind. By hitting a reset button and bringing them back to the truth. And saying, get rid of all that garbage thought that you had before. It has nothing to do with reality. And start seeing the truth for what it is. And He transforms us through our mind. You know, we kind of think of people... I've done this with people. I look at people and I think, if I could get them to convert, think of the things that they could do for the church. Think of the, the resources that we could have if I could just convince them to come over. It's like, it reminds me of Darth Vader when he's in the Return of the Jedi and he's trying to convince the Emperor why they should convert Luke Skywalker. He says, if we could only convince him to join the dark side, if he could be turned, he would be a powerful ally to the dark side. And I think about that nowadays when I think about converting people. That I'm not trying to convert people to make God's kingdom better. I'm trying to convert people because God deserves it. Because it's His kingdom. And those people deserve to, to die, but Jesus Christ died for them, and therefore He deserves more so to have that life. And so it's my job to win souls because Jesus Christ deserves it because of what He did. It's my job to serve the Lord because Jesus Christ deserves it for what He did. For His honor, for His glory, not for my benefit, not for the church's benefit, not for the you know, make the world a better place. That's all good stuff, and those are all great byproducts. But Jesus Christ is owed my life. Jesus Christ is owed everyone's lives for what He's done. And so everybody needs to be turned. We, I mean, we have to be gentle. We're called to be gentle and meek and respectful because we're breaking down strongholds with weapons of war. We're taking thoughts captive. We're not just winning arguments we are waging spiritual warfare and changing worldviews and digging out cracked foundations that are you know, just built on sand and trading them with the foundation of Jesus Christ. I mean, we're changing the way people think completely. I mean, we're not, but God is. And we're the ones who are doing the digging so that God can fill in the, the empty hole with truth. Nobody goes to hell for what they don't know. Nobody in the world. People are sent to hell for sinning against the God that they do know. And our job is to try to pull them off that ledge. Why send missionaries to people around the world who have never heard about God? You know, if somebody's living in, in the middle of the Congo, they've never heard about God, never seen a Bible, never seen a missionary, then don't they have an excuse for living without God? I mean, if they're just living as cannibals or whatever, running around naked and doing whatever... Is that, I mean, they've never heard of the, the Scripture. They've never met a missionary. Don't they have an excuse to live the way they live? If they, if they could die and go to heaven and just say, but God, I didn't know. Nobody ever told me. If they really had that kind of an excuse, if they really were, could be safe in their ignorance, then we should keep the Word of God as far away from po- as possible. We should build a wall around them and let them die in their ignorance because they won't be held accountable. Right? But we send missionaries all over the world to urge people to repent because they already know the truth about God and have rejected it. They've already sinned against God. They know their conscience. They know the law of God written on their heart. And they've broken it again and again. I'm sure some of you have heard Paris Reedhead, the ten shekels in a shirt sermon. And he talks about going to Africa to try to improve on God's justice. To help poor sinners who didn't know any better and just needed a fair chance to get saved. Someone to tell them so they could be freed from their troubles. 
And this is what he said after he went to Africa, thinking that, this is what he said. When I went to Africa, I discovered that they weren't poor, ignorant little heathen running around the woods looking for someone to tell them how to go to heaven. They were monsters of iniquity. They were living in utter and total defiance of far more knowledge of God than I ever dreamed they had. They deserved hell because they utterly refused to walk in the light of their conscience and the light of the law written upon their heart and the testimony of nature and the truth that they knew. So he went and he lived in Africa and he met these people and he discovered they weren't just a bunch of ignorant fools. They were willing fools who had rejected the truth and were living against it on purpose. Everybody knows about God, but not everybody wants Him. If it's true for the lost tribes in the jungles of Africa, it's true for everyone around the world. The atheist can't find God for the same reason a bank robber can't find a cop. They don't want to find Him. They're not looking. They're running the other way. When someone tells you they don't believe in God, don't believe them. I've had people ask me, well, you know, I tell them about God, and they say, well, what God are you talking about? You know the God I'm talking about, is what I say. You know Him, and you've rejected Him. The God of Scripture, the God of the Bible, you know this God, and you refuse to accept Him. That God. And people get mad at God. They, 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 get, they, they get mad at God for, you know, they think He's killed their family or robbed them of their opportunities or their health. And, and so they judge God as unjust and choose not to trust in Him. But how can you be angry at a God that you don't believe in? And, and, and why would you expect justice in an evolutionary world? I mean, people want there to be justice. They get sick and tired of death and disease and sickness and suffering. But they blame God for it. They make themselves the judge. They think there should be justice, but they claim to live in a world where evolution rules, where there is no justice and the strongest survive. You know, if we really lived in an evolutionary world, then Hitler was right. And he should just kill off everybody who couldn't stand up against him. But that's not the world we live in. So, and people get mad at God. You know, in the real world, nobody gets angry at Santa. Well, kids maybe. You guys don't get angry at Santa for not getting presents. Because you don't believe in him. You guys don't get angry at the Easter bunny if you don't get colored eggs. Why would you be angry at a God if you didn't believe in him? If he didn't exist, there would be no anger. Psalm 14.1, you've heard this before. Fools say to themselves, there is no God. They sin and commit evil deeds. None of them does what is right. And how do you deal with a fool? Proverbs 26 says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you yourself also be like him. When they say there is no God, say, yes, there is a God, because look at this evidence. Say, no, you know there's a God. And there's plenty of proof about Him. You've just rejected Him. Answer The next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own estimation. So you tell a fool that there is a God and you know there is a God and you're a fool for not believing Him. What's a fool's folly? Saying there is no God. That's the point. So don't answer Him acquiescing to the foolish argument that there is no God. You answer Him from the universal truth that God is real and everybody knows it. God is the only provable truth. You can't know anything for sure unless you are God. Because there's plenty of things we don't know. So the only way to know anything for sure is to know everything. Because there's always the question, well, how do you know that? And you can that's a great question to ask an atheist. If they say, I don't believe in God, well, how do you know that? 
Because he doesn't seem to exist. Well, how do you know that? I mean, you can use the same argument that they you know, purport to, to, to cling to. But how can you trust your brain? You know, it's a bag of chemicals that does electrical things. How can you believe that it's working? How do you know that you're not asleep and dreaming all this? How, how, you can't. You can't know anything unless you know everything. And only God knows everything. So since you and I aren't God, the only way that any of us can be sure of anything is to know God and to have Him reveal truth to us. So we can know things as Christians, and only Christians can know anything for sure because God has revealed that truth to us. The One who knows everything has given us knowledge of Himself. Colossians 2, verse 2 says, My goal is that their hearts, having been knit together in love, may be encouraged and that they may have all the riches that assurance brings in their understanding of the knowledge of the mystery of God, namely Christ, Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will deceive you through arguments that sound reasonable. You hear a lot of arguments that sound reasonable in the world today. But the only real truth that where all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden is Jesus Christ. The proof that God exists is that without Him, you couldn't prove anything. Without God, there is no proof. How do you know the Bible is true? Because if it wasn't, you couldn't make sense of the question. There would be no evidence if God hadn't revealed the truth. To ask the question, how do you know the Bible is true? How do you know God is real? Is to to assume that there is truth. To assume there's an answer to the question. But you can't make sense of the truth without God. And the, and the true Word of God says that everybody knows that God is real and nobody has an excuse for rejecting Him. Only an, an omniscient God, one who knows everything, can account for universal, immaterial, unchanging truth. And only the Bible can account for that God. The one true God who knows all truth, who is the truth Himself, has revealed Himself to us in our hearts, in our consciences, in the nature around us, in His Word, through His inspired Word Himself, God has revealed Himself. So the next time you're sharing your faith, and someone says they don't believe in God, remember that the reason an unbeliever can know anything is is not because his worldview is true, that there is no truth, but because the Bible is true. It will change the way you defend your faith. You think about the fact that when he's arguing, he's arguing from the standpoint that, that there is truth. And the only way for real absolute truth is for an absolute truth giver. So we're telling the world, you know, it will make some people very angry. People will get very angry at you because you're breaking down strongholds. You're attacking their foundation. You're destroying their worldview. And some people get angry. Some people break down in tears because they're, it's like they're being caught, you know, like like several governors of Illinois caught in their crimes, people break down in tears because they realize they've got no hold on the truth and they need to change. So people will get emotional and you'll run into problems. And people, get, people are persecuted around the world and killed because they stand for God and they share the truth. You know, if you, if you come upon a bricklayer who's building a wall 
and you notice the, the last brick they just put down is crooked, and you say, that, brook's, that brick is crooked, they're not going to be really upset because it's just one brick. But you start telling them that bottom row is crooked, and it affects the whole wall, they're going to be upset. And that's what we're doing when we're attacking people's worldviews and breaking down the strongholds. It's, it's spiritual weapons of warfare, and they're not going to be happy about it. So, know God's Word, because that's important. If you don't know God's Word, you don't know anything. And share His truth with humility, with gentleness, because it's a double-edged sword. And it pierces to the dividing of soul and spirit. And, and, and it will... I mean, it, it sounds like it'll wreck your life, but it's the only way to save your life. But, you know, the truth is that the only hope for cutting out the sin in people's hearts and minds and bringing them back to life and saving their souls is this truth. And it hurts, but it's the only thing that can save you from the cancer that is killing you with sin and rejection. So know this truth and share this truth and know the world around us. Know how the, you know, understand scientific knowledge and those kinds of things and be able to use that to show the world that all evidence, that all the evidence in the world supports the Bible, supports the truth because Christianity is true. And do it with gentleness and with kindness. But, but don't remain in ignorance or in silence about it. This is so important because people's lives need to be saved because Jesus Christ deserves it for what He's done. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You so much for giving Yourself to save us. We didn't deserve it. Nobody deserves it. We deserve to be killed and tortured for eternity because we've turned our backs on You the good lawgiver, the one who always had our, intent, our best intentions at heart, who always wanted good for us, and we've rejected you and hated you and despised you. And in spite of that, you gave your life to save us. You went through torture to save us so that we wouldn't have to be tortured. God, help us to understand that and to know that and to live our lives for you because you deserve so much better. Thank You for being willing to transform our lives, to rescue our lives from the pit, to transform our minds so that we can think straight again, to help us to live in righteousness and to be the good people that You always wanted us to be. Thank You so much for all Your gifts. God, please continue to pour out Your grace upon us and Your mercy upon us because without it, we're doomed. Thank You, Lord, for all Your good gifts. Please keep watching over us and help us to serve You well. In Your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.